So I'm always turned into the Noam Chomsky of solutions. That's what so many people want me to be because they've only got so much stomach for the way it is, see? So if we're gonna end up talking about elderhood sitting here together, I'm trying to give you a feel for it now. I'm saying elderhood is not the people who finally figured out how to stop hurting. Elders are the people who finally figured out how to hurt. I know how to hurt. I'm hurting out loud, saying these things to you. Welcome to This Is Aging, a podcast on a mission to explore the upside of getting older. We're your hosts, Dana Schultz and Melissa Reeves, two friends approaching midlife who are fed up with anti-aging culture and refuse to believe that life was all downhill after 40. We believe life can get better with age and we're here with the stories to prove it. Join us and our inspiring guests as we flip the aging narrative on its head and trade fear for curiosity and celebration. This episode is probably going to be different than anything you've heard before and definitely different than the episodes we've done on Tia so far. And if you're looking at the length of the episode and thinking, I just don't have time to listen to this, I really encourage you to carve out the time, even if you've got to do it in chunks. Do not listen to it on double speed or time and a half. You just need to let yourself feel the gravity of this conversation. I first heard Stephen Jenkinson on another podcast a few years ago, and I felt like I had been hit by a truck. So you may have a similar experience. There is still so much hope in this conversation. We talk about Stephen's work in the death trade, which is what he calls end-of-life care, as well as how to be thinking about the world we live in, the change that is occurring around us, our roles and our responsibilities, and at the end of the day, what it really means to be human. We actually got to record this conversation in person with Stephen in Berkeley after seeing his last performance in the U.S. of Nights of Grief and Mystery. We'll also be releasing a full unedited video version of this conversation, which will be on our YouTube page. You can search for This Is Aging on YouTube, and I highly recommend that if you want a more intimate experience of the conversation, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Welcome to the show, Stephen Jenkinson. Um, for all of you who don't know Stephen's work, Stephen teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded with his wife, uh, Natalie, in 2010. He has master's degrees in theology from Harvard University and social work from the University of Toronto, and has worked extensively with dying people and their families as a former program director in a major Canadian hospital. And he's also the author of such award-winning books as Die Wise and Come of Age. Welcome, Stephen. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Last night, we had the honor of attending the closing evening, right? Mm -hmm. This is your last, last night. Of this part of the tour. Yeah. Of this part of the tour. Okay. So yeah. Nights of Grief and Mystery is what it's called. Right. And it was an incredible experience of witnessing... Your, your take on life and the work that you've done in this really artistic collaboration with a musician. Gregory Hoskins. Yeah. Yes. Will you tell us a little bit about how you're feeling as that tour ends and you're headed home for the next season? Sure. Uh, no relief. No relief. No, it's a very, I'm a strange animal this way. I mean, my, the, this 
stock and trade answer at this moment should be, can't wait to get home on all of that sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong, I don't mean that, by in going home. But you have to craft an ability to water spider it when you're on the road, right? You can't invest yourself in every moment and pour forth and you got to wait and save and uh, calibrate and all these kinds of things, you know. So it's a very rarefied experience. And then you're a bit piratical too, if that's an adjective, I think it is. That you feel a bit like a motorcycle gang that's not, uh, not up to no good, but is up to something. And uh, so you're, you're traveling in a kind of cocoon of sorts, you know. And to break out of that is to dispel the heightened sense of possibility that attends to every evening that you get to perform. And uh, it's not a drag at all, because you need the ordinariness of life to be a reason for the, those nights. But I don't look forward, to be honest, to the ordinariness and the reigning in of the, uh, the unmitigated crash and burn joy that it is to do. I, I, I fess up, I love it, you know. So I'm a bit of a, I'm, a bit, I'm not, de I wouldn't say dependent, but joyously joined at the hip to the enterprise. So that's a long winded way of saying, I'll do my best when I get home to not feel that I've, I'm bereft of something. But of course I also am, you know, but without the ordinary life, it's just spectacle. It's not ceremony. Mm. And that's what ceremony requires is 23 hours and 18 minutes of ordinary life for the balance being ceremonial and some kind of takeoff is available. Mm. Yeah. How do you find what that looks like? How do you, how do you step out of the ordinary into the moments that will actually create that kind of balance? Well, I'm lucky that I have a kind of uh, being, uh, having a farm, a working farm. I have a kind of structure to the ordinary days that borders on the devotional. It's all necessary and it's all grindingly ordinary, but I don't have to invent any of it. It's seasonally driven and it's driven by the, the animals and their disposition and their willingness to behave and, you know, everything else. And the people that are working there with us. And uh, you're very much an acolyte of the seasons. So this is the ordinariness that's the foundation of your ability to proceed. That's what I draw from, I'm certain. You know, the stories that I tell there are not stories of heroic vanquishing of ideological adversity or anything of the kind. They're very ordinary stories. If you actually just saw them on the page and you didn't hear the lift, of the evening last night and you didn't feel the, mm -hmm. the sensoria and its build and its plea and all of that, you'd think, okay, like mm -hmm. sort of that kind of interesting, you know, but uh, my capacity such as it is, is to implore the ordinariness of a story to appear in three dimensions one more time with feeling uh, because we could use the real thing now. That's how I come to the stories that are entrusted to me just by the life that I have been lucky enough to live and the work that I've been lucky enough to have. So then to answer your question more directly, 
ordinary life is not something I'm trying to leave behind to get to the real thing. I'm, I'm lucky that I don't have a, a working life that I have to hold my nose to do, or that I'm secretly or not very secretly suspecting is somehow hurting the world the way so many men in particular are positioned in their lives, you know, to be doing work of various kinds of degradation, personal and ecological and economic and so on. I'm not one of those guys. So I have a responsibility because necessity has not ground me that way. It's kind of burnished me instead. Yeah. And so I understand my obligation to be a translating obligation, not really a quote creative one. Somebody credited me last night with being a creating all of this. And I said, no, I don't, I can't abide by the word actually, because to me, the word creation suggests a kind of what they say in snazzy circles, ex nihilo situation, that you're creating from nothing, from pocket lid, from your just personal genius, mm. etc. Mm. None of that's true, you know. I'm a, I'm a lint keeper, really. I'm just going through the days and gathering a certain degree of um, compelling flotsam that seems to come my way. I just pay attention, you know. Paying attention doesn't, uh, it's not as reassuring as you'd think, though. It's a very costly enterprise in a time like the time we're in to give a shit, you know, and to, and to proceed purposefully that way. But my good fortune prevails over my uh, sorrows in the matter. Not prevails. It's more compelling than the sorrows tend to be in a given night, yeah. There's lots of time for sorrow, but um, sorrow is a kind of midwife to what you saw last night and uh, a kind of strange semi-stillborn dream that it could be otherwise. I think that's the time that we're in, that the dreams are a bit stillborn now and they have the character of those precast concrete lawn ornaments now, that everybody's front gate could be festooned with their former convictions about, you know, what kind of life could be had and what the world could look like. And yeah. So if you're performing night after night in that kind of context, that has to show up so that people recognize their lives and what you're doing. And if you don't do that, what do you, what are you doing? And the answer is giving them alternative to their real lives. Well, I'm not saying nobody should do that. I'm, I guess somebody needs to do that. I'm not that somebody. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm so curious how you came to do the work that you do. Me too. <laughs> we know a bit about your education, but yeah. was that always your intention? Then was there a gap between your education and working in the death trade, as you call it, and then becoming an author? I'm just curious kind of what was the, the path there? Well, I think to call it a path, ennobles the arrangement in a way that's not accurate. There was no path. There was nothing to follow or even to aspire to. I didn't know that this thing I've just described to you existed as a possibility. I didn't know the same thing about the death trade. I mean, naively, this may sound disingenuous to you, but I wasn't aware that there was a, a, a working life that was devoted explicitly to 
the care and feeding, feeding of dying people. I had, to, I had to find that out. And the way I found out, first of all, I wasn't in my 20s nor my 30s, which helped tremendously because I wasn't thrashing about wondering what I was capable of. That's what we're doing. Thrashing about? <laughs> we're just, that's what we're doing. Okay. So thanks. Well, you're doing it in a calm fashion. That's, it's a good start. Um, so literally, uh, a woman who knew me well at the time was of the opinion that I was built for this. Now, you can either dismiss such people and their dreams for you, or you can, with virtually no particular dream of your own at that moment, take it on for, for sizing, you know, and see if the pattern sort of sits on you properly. I guess I did that. And uh, it took the form of, here's a list of guys. They're terrifying the mostly female staff of the hospital. I mean, that may be a little mm -hmm. strong, but they may have said that. Uh, and I would say, and I said, I can remember saying, what are they doing? I mean, is it, are we talking about criminal stuff or what do you, no, no, no. Uh, well, the first, they divide up into two groups. One is belligerent, hostile, aggressive, and all the rest, because they've got someone who's dying in their lives, like now, or someone's very recently died. And this is, this is the repertoire that they draw upon in this moment. I said, okay, I can understand how that's unnerving, to say the least, to go to work every day wondering what you have to contend with. What about the other guys? Oh, they're much worse, she said. Much worse, I said. How? Oh, they don't say anything at all. That was worse, apparently, by far. So anyway, they gave me this list of names, these guys. And I performed the ultimate cold calls. I phoned them with no preamble and said, I'm trying to put this group together. It's going to meet at the hospital library. Um, I have your name on this list as someone who said someone recently died. Uh, are you in? And do you know what the, the killing point on all of these suggestions were? Why nobody, I had no takers for a while until mm -hmm. I figured it out. When they zeroed in on the fact there'd be no women in the room, mm -hmm. they were out. Isn't that something to think? And it took me a while to, to hear what I was listening to. But I realized that they were un unnerved in the extreme and probably for good reason at the prospect that without the mediating influence or presence of a woman in the house, then the likelihoods for high expressed emotion, let's just call it neutrally, were quite enhanced. And they had a nose for that, you see. And so they were out. And so by the third time I said, to, oh, this is going to work out great for you then. And he said, why? I said, this is turning out to be a group for men who don't want to be in a group for men. That's what you all so far have in common. Somehow I got six or eight to say yes. And we met and I didn't know why. And we sat there in the room the first time and I'm beside myself with uncertainty. I'm not a group process guy. I'm not really a devotee of things therapeutic or cathartic. So it kind of removes most of the usual candidates for what the hell you're there to do. But it had something to do with this thing I had not a language for yet, which I would just call grief now. And we realized by the end of the first session that these guys were remarkable practitioners of this subtle and sometimes bellicose art of anger. 
And I don't say that sneeringly at all. I really genuinely mean they were good at it. And there is such a thing as being good at anger without destruction being the only or the, or the necessary consequence. But by the second week, we'd all figured it out that they were good at anger as a kind of cover story for something they were no good at. Well, there's nothing unusual about these guys in that regard. A lot of us have cover stories as, as a kind of throwaways to the real thing. But their dilemma clearly was that they were no good at sadness. I mean, no good at sadness. The sadness unnerved them, undid them in a way that anger didn't come anywhere close to. And so they dubbed the whole event Sad School. That's what they called it. And we were supposed to meet six weeks, I think it was, or eight. And that thing lasted something like 18 months at their insistence. Not the same group. Obviously, people came and people went and it got bigger and the news got out that it was happening and something was cooking and somewhere's in there. I was offered a, quote, real job, you know, by the hospital. But I'm not an organizational guy, so this was doomed. And I knew it was doomed. And I said, yes, doomedly, if there's a word. And I, at some point, I probably waited for the other shoe to drop of me not being able to negotiate the administrivia and the, the strange organizational behavior that ensues and all of that. Because I was in the trenches, you know, with these guys, and then subsequently with the dying people. But the way it worked, uh, I was kicked up the food chain pretty, pretty fast, considering, considering I had no background in this. And by another six months, I was the super, clinical supervisor of all I surveyed. And I was dictating certain clinical practices of the physicians. So I'm here to tell you, if you're ever in that position, make sure you count whatever you got in the bank and understand it's not going to last. Because the physicians, physicians, God bless them, will not look the other way when a non-physician has some observation to make about their practice, their non-medical practice. But that's what it came to, right? And that's what I was hired to do. And uh, they loved it for a while. Everybody did. Uh, and the, the loved it for a while part is the beginning of the book, Die Wise. But certain misgivings began to, to come very quickly as soon as I was engaged at the level of uh, team meetings and uh, organizational decision-making and so on. I began to hear a certain thing that I've come to call death phobia inform all the practices, basically, all the decision, all the priority making, all the allocation of funding, really, at that level, it was everywhere. And it, the most mani manifest incarnation of it was in the language that people used. The kind of obscuring, uh, distancing language that was employed to talk to dying people about their dying. So that they could come away from the encounter and say that they spoke with dying people about their dying. And so, patient aware of diagnosis, check yes, all the check boxes, right? But it wouldn't be accurate in any human understanding of the term patient aware of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Patient informed of the information, yes. Translation into way of living with the information wasn't even dreamt of. So I began to see these shortfalls, terrible shortfalls, really, and the kind of strange disembodied language that was employed to talk to dying people, to keep their dying from them in the, order, in the name of being compassionate. Mm -hmm. 
And so I just developed a parallel universe language. Not, I literally didn't make up my own words, of course, but I employed the language that was entrusted to me at birth and pressed it into service as a place where the realities of dying could appear and call that compassion instead. And you know that's not going to last because it's a, it turns out not to be an idea when you, this becomes a practice, which it was for me. It is something much closer to devotion. And devotion is unnerving for people who are staunch and convicted about something. Another person's devotion becomes, by definition, a kind of challenge. And I didn't intend it to be, but I'd be naive to say I wasn't aware that it was going to go that way fairly quickly. Mm. And I'll just give you a manifestation of what this looks like. It just occurs to me now that the woman in question in the bed was uh, advanced in her uh, breast cancer. And um, she was so chemo and radiated that the nurses had put a skull and crossbones thing on the front door of her, you know, to warn away pregnant women and children not allowed to visit. I mean, it was pretty, uh, quite, I mean, she could glow in the dark, basically. So I'm sitting talking with her, and then a, a social worker comes in, and uh, with no particular uh, preamble, uh, including shutting up long enough to know who you're sitting beside. But she was obviously nervous. And professional nervousness is not a pretty thing to see, I have to tell you. And she announced, she pronounced, she, she did the, the order of good cheer on this woman. And she said, quote, she said, listen, just so we're clear, you're not a woman dying of cancer. And I'm thinking, good God, where the hell is this going? And then I heard, she said, you are a woman living with cancer. Now, if you just read that on a piece of paper, you'd think, life-affirming. What could possibly, how could that be untowards in any way at all? Here's how the woman's dying of cancer. And clearly now, she's not allowed to be dying of cancer. This disqualified. As an identity, as a, pro a life project, as a self-understanding, none of this is permitted. She has to choose between being a living person and being a dying person. That's what I mean by the language. Okay. Was that one of the first times in your position there that you encountered such a kind of fork in the road of what you were trying to do and what the hospital program was trying to do? So I guess one of my primary curiosities was like, when did you first notice that things were going awry? Oh, right away. Right away. Yeah. Right away, because like I said, I was old enough to know my own, the sound of me. I wasn't trying to find out what it was. I wasn't looking for what I was born to do. Mm. You see, I had some instincts about these things, other stories I could tell you about them if you're interested. So that I wasn't coming to this groping in the dark for an identity. It didn't save me. It didn't rescue me from anonymity. Nothing of the kind. It was an affliction, this job and its realizations of the most arresting kind. So it wasn't the first, I don't remember the first, you know, but it was early and it was constant. And it got to a point, I can very distinctly remember this, when I was making a plea in-house, okay, so there's no John Q. Public is not in the room, right? It's just us, chickens. So this is where the shit tends to hit the fan. 
This is where the involuntary candor begins to appear in those circumstances. And I was trying to make the plea for the possibility that, that the dying people are not consumers of a healthcare product, which is how they are being oriented to, you see. Because if they're consumers, what are we? Answer is, the consumed. All our helpfulness is there to be inhaled and broken down and so on. But what if you treat people as if they're not there to consume something, but they're there to die, not to cave in to death, to die in the active, engaged sense of the term. And so in, to make this plea yet one more time, but probably with more exasperation than I intended, I said something like, well, for God's sake, I said, let's get clear on whether or not we're in the customer satisfaction business. Because if we are, then the death phobia prevails every time because you'll genuflect and you'll defer to the patient's unwillingness to hear from you about the realities. Of course you will, and you'll call that compassion. And so it just keeps doing this. It'll never change. And you could see the look on the face. This guy. And finally, somebody broke into what I was saying. And she was the youngest physician there, younger than me by 10 or 15 years. And she said, uh, well, I am. I made her say it. I said, you're what? She said, I'm in the customer satisfaction business. Absolutely. And there was no hesitation in her saying it. She knew it to be so. She had no qualms about it. She had no second thoughts that being a customer satisfaction practitioner boxed you in and disallowed a lot of elements of candor that are frankly mandatory for you not to be a malpractitioner. Now, them's fighting words in the trenches. I know that. Mm. But I think it's fair to call the failure to be candid with dying people about their dying malpractice. How were you perceiving the dying people that you were working with to be receiving this uh, life-affirming... My crazy stuff or, or theirs? Theirs. Their life-affirming, so to speak, um, treatment and language. You know the answer already. I can tell by the question you're asking. You know that there was collusion galore between the end users, as they'd like to be called, of the death trade work or, or specialization and the practitioners of that specialization. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a marriage made in deformed kind of heaven. This is what they wanted. This is what they got. So what do you think the customer, what's the word I need? The evaluation forms. What do you th how do you think they read? Um, I found the staff particularly sensitive to my needs. Mm -hmm. Do you know what sensitive means in the context I'm describing to you? Insensate. It means yeah. nobody home because the, because the, the, the patient is happy, but the patient's not happy, not even relieved. The patient's on a kind of life support system that you can't see yet, called somehow everything's gonna be okay, but it's not gonna be okay, not by any sense of the term, nor is it supposed to be okay, is it? What are you there to do? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you can clearly tell it's not too far away from me. What are you there? <laughs> 
to do. And I tried to get them to answer the question. But it's, it's very difficult to end up in the position of being a kind of inquisitor, particularly if you're a junior member, not in age, but in status, you know, relatively. And then I got kicked upstairs real fast, but still, from the point of view of the physicians, a bit of a junior player and a non-physician to boot, and the only non-physician in the room, typically, which puts me way back in the line. But I didn't behave like I didn't know anything. Maybe that's not the right term. I didn't behave as if these things were not as troubling as they should properly be. I behaved like they were troubling. I didn't personalize it. I didn't blame people. You know, I was cagey enough to realize how inane that would be to do. But at some point, you got to be troubled beyond your ability to handle it at the year-end conferences that you're invited to talk where there's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent to gather all these people from all over the country and further beyond in order to do what? And the answer is so they can amen each other. So they can say, we're, you know, we're doing such a good job, but we can do better, here's how. That's the manifest destiny of these conferences. And then somebody comes along and says, wait a second, before we talk about how we can do what we're doing better, what are we doing? And that was the simple question I would ask. What are we doing? What's our self-understanding of the consequences of what we roll out day in and day out? And there's no long-term survivors to bear witness to it. So we have to, because all our customers die. So we have to be more alert than our customers, not my favorite word there, than our Our partners in the in the grim, dismal trade would allow us to see, because they're colluding with the part of us that wants to be held in some kind of reasonable esteem. It's not a bad thing to want from your job, but if your esteem costs the dying person, they're dying. You have to ask whether or not you got to get that esteem somewhere else, mm. not from that engagement. So that's what I tried to do. You see. And I literally did it by finding a language where the, the dying appeared in the language. Not you had to grope through it to see, figure out if you're dying or you're not or what. Or... I can't tell you how many times I would ask the following question. And if it's a well-timed question, it, it works wonders. What's your understanding of what's happening? That's it. That was magic. And routinely, dying was not part of the answer, which becomes part of the answer, if you follow what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The not dying is what you're doing with your dying. And in Anglo-North America, people routinely opted for not dying as they died. Mm -hmm. So the only word you can use to describe that funhouse situation that distorted mirror situation is that they expired, but they didn't die. Most of them didn't die. Most of them fell off the edge and just stopped going. But in order to say what I just said to you, there's a steep redefinition of what dying is that's mandatory there. 
That's what I fi- fundamentally tried to do, is redefine dying so that it became something not that happened to you, that had to be micromanaged, but something that you did instead. Mm. Dying is what you do. It's not what happens to you. In the English language, that is a grammatical fact. Mm. For anybody who's listening at home, so what does he mean it's a grammatical fact? I'm not making this up. In the English language, our verbs have something we call voices. And there's only two, passive, active. The verb to die in the English language, every time you use it, is an active verb. You can't use the verb to die passively and make sense. You actually have to change the verb to get the passivity into the story. How do you do that? Either you die, active, or what would you say? You are killed. Mm-hmm. Passive. Whoa, but they're not synonyms either. No. You can feel the atoms in the room change when I say it. Right. So what's going on if people aren't dying? How many linguistic alternatives are there to dying when you fail to say it? Killing me slowly seems to be the order of the day. By the time you start talking this way, you know your days in the citadel are numbered. Clearly. Fairly, I should say. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But while I was there, I said it. Yeah. So if, per se, I'm on my deathbed yeah. and I'm dying. When, when, you might want to say. When. There we when are. When I'm dying. Yeah. Um, and Do you see what I mean? Yes. That's what I mean about the language. Yeah. You say if, and I collude with that. What do we say? Oh, she's got other plans. Yeah. yeah. Just doesn't include it. That's legit. Mm-hmm. You're young. Who cares? Yeah. It's, it's a long ways away. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. None of that shit's true. You don't know it's a long way away. Mm-hmm. Could I could live anything. longer than you. It's true. Yeah. So, so when I'm dying, there we are. if there is no one around acknowledging that fact, yeah. is there a way that I myself can prepare myself to die wisely as you've put it. Okay, there's a couple of details in the question that need to be addressed. A first one is the word prepare. Is it good enough word? But what is it what do we tend to mean when we use the word prepare or get ready? And in my hearing it has a kind of insurance policy element to it. It's it's arming and enabling you to contend well a priori, out in front, so that you're never quite blindsided or quite, or, 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 or kind of the wish equivalent of the living will or the advanced directive. You know? But I'm here to tell you that dying is so unprecedented an event in your life that there is no readiness of that kind for it. None. Oh, so it's just crash and burn. I didn't say that. I just said you, you're not ready. You're not ready for what you've never seen. The only way you can do that is to fake it by trying to turn it into something that re- resembles something that you've already seen. And so that's why the language is so disfiguring. People use a list of alleged synonyms for dying. None of them are synonyms. And once you, you plumb the list, they're, they're grotesque in their in their obfuscation. They really are. Like, how about this one? Transition. 
Mm. How could you sit? How could you opt out of that? Ready to tra transition? What does it ask of me? Oh, nothing really. It's just a slight hiccup in the proceedings. Well, is it? How do you know? Have you looked in the eyes of the dying as it's manifest in these dying people and call that a hiccup? You haven't, or you'd never use the language. I'm not saying everybody dies tormented and riven, mm -hmm. but I'm telling you, most people do. And the people that don't tend to have already been approached with the mother's helper of sedation and tranquilization and antidepression well before they get there. They can't get there by virtue of that drug regime. They can't get there. So it seems that at some point you began to realize that there was something, I, I, I don't even know what language to use, but missing or, or broken in the way our society, and by our society I mean modern Western culture, really. Mm -hmm. there, at what point did you begin to feel that? Because I hear in everything that you're saying, these people that are, that are dying and are tormented, and even if they're not tormented, they're, they're just not able to be present with <laughs> the reality that that's what's happening to them. Yeah. There's, this doesn't feel like it has always been this way. Human, it's, not a, it's not a flaw of the design that we die, right. and it's not a recent development that we die either. Correct. So, so what the, like, what the hell? What the hell? What the fuck? That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> That's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course you're right. Not everybody dies the way I just described to you. Now, the people dying today across the world in this moment, not all of them are dying the way I've just described. Mm -hmm. That's true. Thank God, by the way. Okay, so you have to dial down a little bit more. You can't st be talking about humanity here because it's not human, what I've described. It's not anti-human either. It's, it's a strange... Okay, language again. So we have the word human, and then we have, add an E on the end of that word. What does that mean? Human is a properly proper adjective. Do we need one that has an E on the end? What's the difference? And in common parlance, there is no difference. But there is, what is it? Human, the way we transact the proposition in Anglo-North America, human is like inevitable. It's like, you can't blow that. Like you can't forget it, you can't lose it, you can't misplace it. You just, once you're dialed in you're, and you're here, we just stamp you with that shit and that's, that's as good as gold. There's your real citizenship. Of course, most places in the world that you would actually call human don't believe that for a second. You can misplace your humanity with alarming ease in such places that you realize a lot of their ceremonial life is designed to reconstitute your humanity, not to affirm it, to gather it back together again, literally to remember it. So why do we have the word humane in our little corner of the world? And the answer is because we realize that in, the, in this kind of how should I put it, unmitigated capacity to be human all the time, we F it up. Is that part of being human? 
or is part of the range of humanity include fundamentally inhuman behavior? And if it does, are you still a human? What does humane do to your understanding of what it means to be human? So, here's a coincidence that I've never heard anybody pay attention to. Everywhere on, in the world where you have a concerted, heavily funded medical and non-medical specialization called end-of-life care, you have death phobia. Now, if you're unfriendly to what I'm saying, you will say, of course, because that's what the end-of-life care is there to do, is to do something with, about the death phobia. That's not what I said, though. What I said was, these are coincidental. And you want to make the cause and effect work in a certain direction that rescues your understanding of contemporary culture. I'm here to say, because I was there, okay? So I'm not making this up. And I'm pleading with people to consider the following. That advanced end-of-life care is a consequence of death phobia, not a solution to it. That's where it actually comes from. Because advanced end-of-life care is not death-friendly. It's chosen life, like the t-shirt used to say. It believes that it's done that. And it chooses life by thinking it's affirming life. But if you cheerlead dying people out of their dying long enough so they can be hopeful chronically, what becomes of their capacity to die? Do you think it's enhanced? Do you think it survives? I'm here to tell you it doesn't survive. It's nowhere to be found thereafter once they cop to the hope regime. And as we say in the show, you heard it last night, nobody hopes for the way it is. We hope for the way it isn't. And so hope, by definition, is not present friendly, is it? That's not how it works. No, but we're not sitting here right now going, geez, I really hope I'm sitting here. And yet, we inhabit the present or do our best to do so, minus the hope that we think is mandatory for any decent thing to, to, to proceed. How can we do it? Hope's not even, in, we're not even engaging in it. You might hope I might say certain things later on or, or desist from certain other things later on, but that's in the future. But now, the future doesn't require you to be hopeful. What it requires you to be is a citizen. And I try to engage dying at the level of citizenship. So I know there's places in the world that are not afflicted this way. So it's not part of our humanity. It has an awful lot to do with our recent, relatively speaking, recent history. You know, the, the creation myths that you have in your country here in the United States, we don't participate in very much in Canada. And we're missing those kinds of binding agents that allow us to say, we, and stand at some public event and sing the same song. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have that kind of stuff. And I don't say we're better people for it because we're groping around in the dark for whatever constitutes Canadian. But I don't mind the groping, to be honest because I see the consequence of having the national mythology. So here's the back end, if you will, the ass end of the national mythology. Who do you think washed up on shore first time who looked like me? Who do you think they were? You think they were the prizes 
of the other place? Mm. Do you think they were the high-end, high-functioning types? Who do you think got here first? Who survived that middle passage? Who didn't die of typhus and all the rest on the way over? The very young and the very old died. So who have you got? Remnants. And who are the remnants? Kind of early middle-aged people. Oh, so they're elderless. Bingo. Out of the gate, they're elderless. Mm. And they got to craft a younger generation from the whoever staggered on shore. Man, this doesn't sound all of that um, something you would want to sing about, you know, at, at the school or even hear about or identify yourself with. So I'm suggesting to you that the middle passage as the flight across the North Atlantic is so often called had the following consequence. A rupture of cultural continuity was the inevitable result of this, quote, discovery of the new world. But we're the ones who had the cultural of rupture. Not so much the people we found here. It's us, and we still have it. And so one of the things that happens is you go to anybody of virtually any age amongst the people that you know. Okay, maybe that's not a good sample. The people who know the people that you know there. And you ask them the following question with no preamble. What happens to you when you die? And if you can muck through the you know, personal convictions that have never been tested in the marketplace of the real thing, you'll find that it's muck. It's just, it's drool, it's drivel. It's so inconsequential and so uninformed, so tepid, so meandering. And you, you see what I'm saying? Now try to do the same thing in the so-called developing world. Ask a 10-year-old what happens when you die. You're going to get chapter and verse. I'm not saying they're right factually, but I'm saying they got a story that they're able to live by. And as it happens, not one of those places has ends of life care. Why do you suppose? Because I'm submitting to you that end of life care comes as a result of the breakdown of your storytelling about what's to become of you when you die. It's that emphatic. It's that traceable. And does it restore some sense of dignity in our humanity to die with a full and honest acknowledgement of what death is? And, and or does it inform our life as well? Like, our, is, is it affecting our whole lifespan? Or are you saying that at the end of life, it's having its most pronounced impact? Yeah. Like, of course, you know the answer to your question. The second part, you know definitely the answer to that. That we don't suddenly become something else when we're dying. People die the way they lived, period. That is an almost universal constant. There are exceptions, but the notion that there's a deathbed aha moment where you just throw the covers off and stagger out into the light, you know, with this realization that totally escaped you when you were fine. I'm not saying there's not cliff edge experiences that you go, holy shit, but, uh, but it was not common at all. So people die in the manner of their living, <clears throat> which would not be a bad thing if you happen to grow up in a death-affirming culture. But if you didn't, then there's nothing in your ordinary life that does anything but skew you when the time comes. It feels like we're not just afraid of death. Correct. We're afraid of... Life. Life. Correct. Yeah. And, 
And it feels like we're especially afraid of the part of life that doesn't feel like it has the value that youth has. For example, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just afraid of dying. I'm afraid of getting old. I'm afraid of becoming invisible. I'm afraid of becoming valueless in my society. Right. And this, I think, is what you just said. You don't see that in other cultures the same way either. Even if you go back to Europe, you don't see that in the same way because there is less of that rupture of the the story of who we are and how we are together. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to... Like the question that sits with me is, I don't know how to pass on something that that matters. Yeah. You know, I have a 14-year-old son who his generation is apathetic. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. And there's a version of that that turns into activism. And maybe that's better than apathy. I don't know. They both feel like reactions mm-hmm. to our fear. True. So what what do I what do I give him? What do I what do I show him that isn't just the best version of popular culture that he can grasp, which is football? Okay. Okay. So we got to make an observation now about the last fifteen minutes. So you can feel the gravitational pull of what I've been talking about, and it's not very complimentary, and it's. And the next thing that happens is what happens most times when I start talking about this, that the person sitting where you are is going to find some way to say, okay, 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 okay. So what do we do about, uh, so how do we, and then however the sentence ends, doesn't really matter because you feel the gravitational shift, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's really important to observe how early on in our engagement with what's gone haywire comes our demand for salvation. It's very early in the proceedings, no? It is. It is. It's unseemly. I don't mean you're unseemly. I mean the insistence on being delivered from the dilemmas of your time does does scant lip service to the dilemmas of your time. So... Literally, I will answer your, your how-to question this way. If you do not fully occupy and begin with the poverties that are the deal, then anything you generate by way of a solution to the deal will be a child of the deal and not an alternative to it. Okay? Okay. So I start with the poverties for that reason. It's not that I have no idea, quote, what to do. It's because what to do comes too soon. I, could, I would keep saying, what to do about what? And then you might say, well, everything you're talking about. And I would say to you, right, what am I talking about? I would get you to find a way to say it, you see. What are you trying to solve by asking me this question? And one of the answers is mother pain, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's father pain too. And there's citizen pain. Just for starters. Okay. So this is going to be a real unsatisfying answer, but it's as close to me treating like a grown-up as I know how to do right now. 
you want a better world for your kid than the one that currently prevails. You want a better life for your kid that now you realize than you had when you were his or her age. Hmm. That's a kind of renovation that you weren't really ready for. That this crazy shit is not ensued in your child's lifetime. This crazy shit was on when you were your child's age. Which is to say what? Your take on things derives in part at least from that crazy shit. It's not on because your kids are kids. It's been around for a while. So your desire to be saved from it comes from that too. The notion that bad enough, I've heard enough about what's wrong. So I'm always turned into the Noam Chomsky of solutions. That's what so many people want me to be because they've only got so much stomach for the way it is. See? So if we're going to end up talking about elderhood sitting here together, I'm trying to give you a feel for it now. I'm saying elderhood is not the people who finally figured out how to stop hurting. Elders are the people who finally figured out how to hurt. I know how to hurt. I'm hurting out loud, saying these things to you. The show you saw last night, which I appreciate your appreciation of, is a hurt event too. It's heartbreak, okay? It's heartbreak to, to manifest and to occupy those places again and say these things. It hurts now. My life could probably be complete without one more goddamn interview where I have to trail this material, right? Really. So what am I doing? And the answer is, best I can figure out one of the public services that are available to me, given the opportunities and the privilege that I was granted to see the crazy shit I'm describing to you. Okay, this is the unsatisfying response, what I'm going to say now. So you want the world to be a better place for the sake of your kids, right? And failing that, you want to be able to defend, protect, and otherwise bubble wrap your kids as best as you can figure out how to do so they're not victims and casualties and statistics of the way it is. They're not a kind of cultural and psychic roadkill that's a consequence of what I'm talking about, that they're not the exit wound of popular culture, right? Right, me too. So you're gonna work on your kids. Wrong decision. Why is it wrong? <laughs> because first of all, your kid's not gonna stand still while you're trying to bubble wrap them. That's one. Two, <laughs> your instinct can be easily misapprehended, can't they? They look an awful lot like suffocating, right? An awful lot like toxic mothering. An awful lot like uh, uh, you're a vector for trauma. And here we go. And there's no bottom to those allegations, you know. Not, not that I'm agreeing with them, but as a characterization, you recognize what I'm saying. Okay, you cannot, as a parent, defend yourself, your, your, excuse me, your kids against the things that trouble you so. You have to work then indirectly. If you work directly, you become the sight line of your kids. Everything they engage culture-wise comes through the, the, your look, your concern, and the rest, right? 
your weird activism, your whatever it is. So you work on behalf of a better day and you hope in the meantime that your kids don't self-destruct while you're doing so. That's it. I told you it was going to be un unsustaining. But here's why. The reason you have to do that and to a certain degree leave them to their own devices is you ain't got no village to entrust them to while you're working on behalf of a better day. You might have a few friends, but you know you're going to burn out your friends pretty quick if you ask them to cover for you while you're on the barricades. Isn't it true? Okay. So what am I really talking about now? My God, you're talking about the culture. You're not talking about parenting per se. I'm saying that the devolution of the cultural envelope to nuclear parenthood is one of the reasons we're talking about what we're talking about now and one of the reasons you teared up when you did and how you did and about what. Okay, so then you realize, if that's true, if it's in there and it's really in there, then even short term, what's available to you as a way of subversive, direct action. And the answer is, you can't fix your kids against the world and ever be understood in so doing by them. You got to do everything you can to do something about the world in hopes that the long-term consequence might gather around them yet, but you may never live long enough to see it. And could you be accused while so doing of a kind of gross negligence as a parent in in single parent land and in uh, in uh, nuclear family land? Absolutely, you can be accused of that and will be. Oh yeah, your home life is self-destructing while you're out here trying to, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? What, but why? Because in a, like those same places we were talking about a few minutes ago that don't have uh, palliative care, that have death wisdom, those places also happen to be village uh, village calibrated. Okay? That's how they go. And their village understanding, not to romanticize in any way, but it does include the following. While you're busy doing a very important piece of public service, you can't possibly be expected to fire in all cylinders at home. So the direct care and feeding well-being of your kids ultimately beyond a certain point is not your principal responsibility as a citizen. But other people at different stages of life cover for you. You're doing that, they're doing this. It's not quite so that you can do that, but that's one of the consequences. See, it's an amazingly... I was going to call it ornate, but that makes it sound complicated. I don't think it's complicated. I think it's, it's severe in its clarity. It's, basically, it comes down to this. If we had a culture that worked, then when you're in your child-rearing time, your child-rearing would be your principal gig. And you wouldn't be diminished. And we wouldn't, nobody would be talking about or you got baby mind, you can't take a clear thought and you're breastfeeding so nobody can count on you and all that stuff that you do here. It would be this. You are serving us collectively by 
em employing the best of you to raise those kids, okay? Up to a certain point, you are principally parents. Beyond that point, being a principal parent is a negligence of your duties. You have to move beyond that without asking your kids to understand that that's the time that their aging has changed your life from being a principally a parent into reacquainting yourself with the obligations of citizenship, given what you've now realized about life, that parenthood conferred upon you, right? Ultimately, you're in preparation mode for elderhood. That's what all this is for. But you're not breezing through life to get to elderhood. See, no more than I was breezing through the death trade to get to a book called Die Wise. I was living and dying that stuff to end up with a book called Die Wise. And so you will do if elderhood is part of the scheme and that you persist somehow. But you understand elderhood is not prevailing. Elderhood comes down to this, I think. So brokenheartedness was the daily regime where I worked. And the solution, and there always was one, was to diminish the role of the heart in the proceedings, and in so doing, diminish the consequences of heartbrokenness. Translation, less heart makes less brokenness. So, when people insisted that they had to feel better as a result of talking to me, my response was to say, you understand that the criteria for you feeling better is that you feel less. You're dying. The degree to which I keep that from you is the degree to which you feel better. You want me to collude with you and call that care. And if I don't do it, I'm the bad guy. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to find some other way. It's going to confound you're the ease by which you can accuse me of being insensitive. This is what being sensitive looks like in these times. I found a hundred ways to say, all I'm trying to do is oblige you, that's right, oblige you to feel more. And then I entrust you and charge you with the obligation to translate feeling more into more capacity. Not feeling better, that you understand feeling more by definition is an increased capacity. You can fire on more cylinders. You're capable of more ambivalence than you used to be. Ambivalence. More, there's more possibilities available to you as a result of not being sure of yourself. Mm. Somebody asked me this morning before you came and picked me up. They said, what do you think of all the things that trouble people about you? What do you think is the primary one? <laughs> so it's interesting. You have to look at yourself like a problem for other people to solve. But, you know, if you have a public uh, demeanor at all, it's, you, you should engage the process from time to time. So I was thinking about it, and I don't remember what I answered her, but I remember what she said. She said, I have a thought about this too. I said, would you tell me? At the end of my answer, she did. This is what she said. She said, you link responsible citizenship with taking care of ancestry. 
with the maintaining of ancestry. I mean, the moral, ethical, religious, spiritual, poetic, mythic maintenance of your ancestry. But that means that you link people inextricably to their traceable ancestry. And then you got legions of people who've opted out of their personal ancestry and claim somebody else's ancestry as being somehow on the mythic and poetic shelf of the great Walmart in the spiritual sky. And they choose who they want to be from. And they practice accordingly. And here you come and say, no, no. All the people you offloaded to shave your head and get yourself a Shakti name. What, what about them as you're pursuing your self-realization? If you believe there's such a thing as ancestry, do you think there's a consequence of you throwing yours under the bus to have a better deal? I said, yeah, I guess that would turn some people. Yeah, I guess it would. Might be. Might be off-putting from time to time. Yeah, it might be. I guess where that leads my mind is, is our aversion of death at the root of the erosion of elderhood? Or is it far more complicated than that? It's not. I don't think far more complicated. You know, every answer I should begin with, I don't really know. That's proper that I should begin, and I keep forgetting to say that. So I don't really know, but I kind of know. So here's the kind of. It's not really death. Death is, you could call it in capital letters, the big one, okay? But the big what? Well, it's not a version of other things that precede it. That's true. I said that earlier. But it does have a kind of lineage, you could say. And in a culture that is death-phobic, the lineage is quite manifest once you learn how to look for it. This is what I think it is. What you're really talking about in the denigration of elderhood is the mistrust and the dis utter outright dismissal of endings, and frailties and limits. That's what it is. And that's traceable to be all you can be in the anti-aging shop where you get your collagen shots and on and freaking on and on. Mind expansion, personal development, all the growth possibilities that are actually not possibilities, but obligations that claim you. I could just go on. But all of these things are regimes of intolerance that don't fess up. What are ordinary people supposed to look like? Tight tummies, is it? No stretch marks, is it? Everything up? Like, I'm not making a joke here. I'm literally asking, what are ordinary people supposed to look like? And you know what the answer is in Anglo-North America? There are no ordinary people. That's the great promise in the sky, isn't it? That's the dream that's awaiting you to be rescued and elevated above the ordinary. Mm. So who do you think's doing the work while you're being all you can be? Who do you suppose? You know, those ordinary people that you don't want to be among? So does your regime for self-exploration include them? Not scrambling over them so you can be a shining light, but them. Because of course you are somebody else's ordinary. No matter what you think, <laughs> it just is. So I, I figure that's what elderhood finally comes to in a sane place and time. It's an exercise of ordination, the root word for ordinary, right? 
the designation of limits and frailties and endings as a legitimate outcome of a deeply lived life. And if you don't have regard for limits and endings and frailties, if you wage war on them in order to be all you can be, be not surprised when that shit wins, which you know it will do. So what are you really doing by being all you can be and stretching to a point where you're unrecognizable as a human form? And the answer is, you're pushing everything back. And as soon as you stop pushing, like the waves on the beach, it comes again. And it's an exercise in what? Control futility or something much more disastrous ultimately for us. And then you come to see me because your regime of self-improvement is in complete collapse. What's that called? Terminal diagnosis. And nothing in your regime of self-improvement readied you for this. Wow. So what were you doing all this time? Not dying as vociferously as you could? And now you want us to rely upon you as a voice of sanity and wisdom? When you're looking for sedation and ayahuasca and whatever else will beam you up one more time? I know I sound intolerant now, but I'm not intolerant of limits. I say, if I'm intolerant at all, there's no if. I'm intolerant of the intolerance of limits because limits seem to me to be God-givenness. It's natural. Let's use the word. It's naturally occurring to be thwarted by the deal. Right? So that's what heartbreak really is. It's the skillfulness of getting it. That's what grief is. Grief ultimately is the capacity to get it. Not to agree with it. Not to prevail against it. Just to get it. But it's a 24-hour job in a time like this to go along with the fray. It's very humbling to be reminded of my impulse for the answer. You know? yeah. I think that the pain of life sometimes makes that feel it's, it's, I want relief, you know, I want, I don't want there to be mother pain. I don't want there to be daughter pain. I don't want to experience these things. I absolutely agree with you that so much of it comes from my own childhood and what I experienced. There's also a contrast there for me because I grew up in Northern Canada. I'm the oldest of 10 kids. I grew up on a farm. I was homeschooled. I did not live in mainstream culture. And yeah. there was something about what I experienced as a child that actually feels like a truer, a truer story to me and something that I, I can't force upon my child. I can't, I don't think I can force it upon culture. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody wants to go back to that. I don't think anybody wants no, I shouldn't say anybody, but the the forces at play, the the you know the mainstream momentum wants change, wants progress, wants to things to be bigger, better, faster, easier, mm -hmm. simpler, mm -hmm. less painful. I mean, if you look at the narratives that exist now around even just you know spiritual consciousness, 
it's all about making sure we're not in pain. And I, and I assume that you have encountered in the work of being with dying people that there's a lot of people that approach that with a degree of maybe tr in some ways I, I, I think it could look like what you've described, which is trying to just disconnect from heart and from the feeling of it. But then I feel like there's also this approach of it's a beautiful thing and you're going through this transition, you know, and we're just going on to the next thing that that is coming and that will going be beautiful. Home. Going home, all yeah. of that, which yeah. which I understand and to some extent I relate to. But when you said mother pain, the word that immediately or the feeling that immediately came to me was this realization that as a result of how our modern culture is and even our modern spiritual culture, I think that if there's pain, it should be fixed. I think that I should take a course or hire a coach or read a book and figure out how to do it better so that it's not painful anymore. Okay. Yeah, so that what? So that, so that it's not painful anymore. Right, but that's not a goal in itself, right? Because it's the whole deal is a momentary thing, isn't it? It's a moment-by-moment -moment calibration you're describing now. Mm -hmm. And this is why I ask you this shit-disturbing question. So that yeah. what? So when you get on the other side of the, quote, pain, mm -hmm. which you're counting on to be a permanent condition, but you know in your bones probably won't be, what's the end goal? What's, so that what? So we're freer somehow? Or what's the... I'm not asking you to defend yeah. the notion no. at all. We're, we're all wondering these things, right? I'm wondering myself. Look... I'm not talking from the position of unafflicted by these issues, not at all. You're listening to the voice of affliction here, right? Which is why I'm, I'm not that keen on leaving the debris behind and then cutting down more trees to build something. I mean, there's already a lot of windfall on the ground. So, like, for the in hopes that it's not completely misunderstood. I'm not advocating, I'm not advocating. I'm certainly not advocating suffering. I'm certainly not pleading with the notion that suffering is somehow improving mm -hmm. in any way, not at all. I've seen what suffering does to people and it, no, it's not improving. So I'm not saying white knuckle run, tough it out, suck it up, grow a set or any of that other stuff. What am I saying about it? I'm saying, observe yourself in the act of being a river around the hurt stone. Ask yourself what you think the consequences are of leaving the hurt behind, aside from getting on a talk show. That would be one of the obvious consequences, mm -hmm. and then writing a book about it, how to leave the hurt behind. But nobody says, so that what? So you can live your better self. So you mean an afflicted self is not a better self? Is that what you mean? So I mean all the time of affliction is a time of denigration. And the only time that we can legitimately sign off on is the time when you somehow... And I just, I mean, I look around. I'm old enough to have the consequences register upon me of people who've chosen otherwise. Then I saw them in the trenches. And I'm not saying, I'm not playing gotcha by saying this. I'm genuinely lamenting the fact 
that the deepest running convictions of the spiritual kind that people brought to their dying time ambushed them in their dying time. I was going to say assassinated. I decided a little bit too strong. Certainly ambushed. People ask me all the time in interviews, still do. So people with a religious or spiritual orientation to life, when it came to their dying, surely they were better off just as a consequence of having such a thing. And I would say, you weren't there then if you think that's true. Because I'm here to tell you the consequence of having such a thing did not cash out as you are now imagining with your question. Did it cash out at all? It did, of course it did. What was the form? Well, if your spiritual practice did not include the oncomingness of your death, if it was a fortress against the oncomingness instead, if that's what you mean by ready, then you will be on the receiving end of that betrayal. But you will feel you're bet betrayed by your practice. But you're really being betrayed by what you refuse the practice to give over, give you over to, which is your limits, your frailties, not to overcome them, to inhabit them. Until you finally understand, baby, the stuff that you're no good at is entrusted to you. Not inflicted upon you. It's handed over to you for safekeeping in exactly the same way a baby is. Here, look, baby's no good at nothing, okay? Can't even make you feel good beyond a certain point. Here. That's what I'm talking about. And I know it's counterintuitive. And I know at some level it doesn't seem to make sense because it would appear I'm talking from a grief-free place. You know this. Nobody looks like this if they're grief-free, right? Right. So, look, throw it away then. Forget about anything I'm saying. Carry on. How do we get like this? By not thinking this way? Do you think our orientation to life in a general sort of way is a contributor to how off the rails things are clearly becoming. So, maybe it comes to this. People who look like me on this continent wake up every day in the absence of what they lost because their ancestors came here. The cultural continuity, the basic understanding, the follow-through between the generations, all of that stuff was ruptured and never reconstituted itself. That's the dream. Austere self-improvement is the dream. But you know it's a cell. It's a jailhouse. Okay. And here's the kind of concomitant dilemma, Minir, as I can tell, that indigenous people, broad term, but indigenous the people who, are, who belong to this place wake up on the same morning as we do, in the presence of what they lost because we came. I don't know whose affliction runs deeper. I used to think I knew, but now I'm not so sure. This is me not being so sure.
I am reflecting on your, I'm not going to say the word path again, but your history in studying um, at the, the Harvard School of Divinity mm-hmm. and then your work with dying people. And I'm curious, as you've gotten to the place where you are now in life, do you distinguish a spiritual life from a quote unquote regular life? Do you have such a thing as a spiritual practice or is life itself the spiritual practice? It's a little bit breezy to imagine that you could actually concoct a life that is just a spiritual practice that you don't need a segregated time or place to do it. Sounds good, but man, (laughs) it's for the pros. I'm not up to that, that standard, I don't think. So I would imagine that on your better days, and there's such a thing, but you know what that means about the rest of the days. Let's just make sure we say that too. But on your better days, your alertness is almost enough, right? Between that and your heartbreak and your engagement with your heartbreak, it almost is enough. But those are your better days. So the rest of the days, you need something else or something else is needed of you, maybe. So it seems to me that as far back as you go in the record, there is a kind of designation that sadly became a segregation. And that's traced in the word profane. The etymology of the word profane, we know what it means today, usually means stuff you say. But it comes from two words. Pro is the Latin prefix for It's a uh, preposition. It answers the question, where? And the answer it gives is, in front of, spatially, but also in front of, temporally. That's the second order meaning of it, right? So that's why we get pro meaning in favor of. It literally means to proceed, proceed, there it is again, in front of, to clear the way for. That's the way by which you designate yourself as in favor of this thing. And phanos is the word for a designated holy thing or place or secondarily time or even person or event, right? So you could call it altar or shrine. So the profane place is the place in front of the altar. How did it come to mean what it means today? Answer is the designation became an exercise in intolerance of everything that wasn't the sacred place. And that's the problem with designating places as sacred. What are you saying about the rest of the joint? What's the consequences now? And this is what happened in your country here. But your sacred place is called private property. So what happens to all the stuff that doesn't belong to a single somebody who's there to take care of it and exercise their rights of ownership? You know what the answer is. That's where the shit goes first. Goes into the valleys that nobody owns. It goes into the river systems that nobody owns or owned for the longest time. It goes into the air that nobody owns and so on. So that's what that's how profane changed its sad connotation from something that meant that which proceeds in favor of the holy to mean that which is not holy. Okay, so... That's a long-winded way of saying to you, I'm lucky enough that I have a farm 
and at the farm between the the demands of the animals in question and the place and the seasonal practices that you must engage in, if not anything for any other reason than your own sanity, there's a there's a temple, if you will, that you could say approximates a spiritual practice. It's what you have because you're too busy for a spiritual practice. You could say it that way too. And it's an amazingly generous circumstance so long as you line up for it. If you resist it, if you automate in order to get out from under it, if you rebel against the notion that there's no such thing as a freaking day off, then you're rebelling against the understanding that what? So holiness is what? Weekends and holy days? So what about the work week? The work week is the place that needs the holiness the most. So you do everything you can to engage your work such, such that it is the practice you asked me about. And I'm lucky that way because what you saw last night is that practice and the fruit of that practice at the same time. But it doesn't deliver me from anything I've been talking about. It makes it, what I'm talking about, more livid and lucid than it would otherwise be. And so then you realize, man, there's a lot of motivation to, to leave all of that to the pros, right? To the, to the weekends, to the workshops, to the retreat centers, to the... But I used to say to people who come to my school all the time, listen, you understand that us to getting together five days a year, excuse me, five days twice a year, does not constitute changing the world, no matter what we accomplish here. Please understand that the most important time by far is all the time you're not here. And they love the sound of it, but, but working that out is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, working it out. Not working it out so that it's worked. Working it out so that your working life carries the work. So on a good day, I get a chance to do all of that. The rest of the time, I forget with the best of them. I mean, the most accomplished forgetters. I can join the ranks. But this is why I appreciate the opportunity and the invitation to do this because it asks me to recall, you know, and to re-inhabit a real legitimate sorrow that I wasn't born into a time that seems more favorable to the delicacy with which we are also built. And I kind of wish I was, but I wasn't. And it's not going to be there in my lifetime. There are delicate moments, but that ain't how it is, right? Okay, so how do you not be cast iron and bulletproof and call that sensitive? I'm thinking about, in your book, Come of Age, you talk about change and how the oldest of us and the youngest of us kind of get the most fallout from the rapid progression of change that we're right. experiencing in culture. Right. And it makes me 
think of what you described in the European settlers that came over to North America, how the the difficulty of that journey and of the circumstances of their time were such that they lost so many of the, their elders and so many of their youth. And so here we are again now as a culture and it's our youth and our elders that are suffering. What, like how should, how can we think about the change that is happening in our world and how rapid it is, how exponential it is? Well, first of all, and this is going to sound slightly belligerent, but I don't mean it to be. I'm not making you guess about what my answer to these things is. I'm manifesting my answering in everything I'm talking with you about. You know, I could have a full life and not do this one more time, and so could you. But here we are, grappling, wrangling. You know, it's not easy, right? Okay, but we're not saying nothing. I'm not not working over here. So I have done exactly what you're now asking me about for however long it's been. So let's not understand everything we've talked so far as a unavoidable but not really necessary preamble to the real thing. The real thing has been here already. And sometimes when it doesn't get its due, it just moves on. And the solution junkies drive that understanding away. Okay, so that's why I don't include myself in the number of the howdyas, you know. I have notions. I mean, I said parenting of your children is an indirect proposition in a sane culture, right? All you are in a parent in a sane culture is a practitioner of the custodial arts. Care and feeding, man. Keep them out of the traffic, right? That's it. But their so-called inner life, that's somebody else's job. You got too much skin in the game to be trusted with that uh, function. And that's what other people around you, the aunties and the uncles and ultimately the elders, that's them. They're, they're not taking over for you. They're just doing what you can't do. Here's the, the great surprise, though. You're not disqualified because of the age you are or the gender you are or whether you're um, festooned with children or whether you're not. No. The circumstance that I'm describing is that you are more than qualified to occupy that position in the inner life of other people's children. It's not like you're on the shelf for 15 years. That's who you should be. The other people should be relying upon you to understand all of this and to be that in their kids' lives while you very ungraciously are being disqualified in the gnarling, gnashing situation that ensues at your house, right? And you know all the reactivities. And it's just, it's, it's, it, look, it's, yeah, of course, you're not at your best most of the time. And in a sane place, if you lived in such a place, you'd be surrounded by people more than capable, not of giving you a break, of giving your kids a break from your inability to figure it out. <laughs> right? That's a, and that's not, sports teams ain't it. Yeah. So it could be that way. And, 
you know, it's not inconceivable to, to do it that way. But you got to cultivate the surroundings first for them to be there. Don't you? Obviously. Failure to do that results in the following. As a farming person, I'm routinely asked some version of the following question. It's a how do you question. It goes like this. When's the best time to plant a tree? They usually mean what time of the season or, you know, this optimal circumstances, whatever it is. My answer is always the same, 25 years ago. <laughs> and they just look at you so disappointed, like, <laughs> yeah, but this is now, I know it's now, but you're asking, you're not asking me anything other than how do I have a tree now? How do I get a tree now? So that's my answer. And it's a legitimate answer now. If your question is, how do people 25 years from now have trees? The answer is plant them now. That's how. It's a different question, right? Because it's a more, in time, a more prolonged understanding of continuity here, which is what North Americans can't stand, apparently. The notion of continuity. Mm. It's got to be innovative. It's got to be new. It's got to get fixed. It's got to be better than it was. And you know, you can just go off on all that stuff. So, yeah, the, the ability to live with remarkable degrees of frustration and uh, failure to see the, the upside of your best efforts, that's really important. And that's basically, to me, what being a grown-up is for, is to employ your capacity for maximum frustration, thwarting of your expectation, your willingness to live long enough to say, I'm not going to live, I realize now, long enough to see the fruits of whatever I tried to do. I kind of wish it was otherwise, honestly. But clearly it's not otherwise, because if you're steering a big-ass ship and you, you, you can torque the wheel like this, but the ass end takes about a million years to start swinging. It just does. And this, what we're talking about, is a big-ass thing. It's not a little dinky toy. You can just go... Right? You don't get to see it in your lifetime. So here's the news. Everybody's heard about the so-called teaching of the seven generation, that notion, right? It's great, but it's half of what should be said. Because how do you do it? How do you live and conduct yourself and make your decisions based on seven generations from now? Aside from th thinking, oh, there'll be so great people then. and <laughs> oh, Whatever you do. <laughs> and the answer is, you can't imagine what seven generations from now is. We can't even imagine, you know, what the, quote, technology is going to do to the kids who are just being born today. Mm -hmm. Seven generations, it just beggars your mind. But there's a technique for doing this that has nothing to do with projection. It has to do with memory. How does it work? It's simple. You're on the receiving end, not the dealing out end. The receiving end of what happened seven generations ago. If you can't see that, you can't see the seventh generation from now. 
You're in the middle, you're the conduit pipe for 14 generations, just to use the number, yeah. You, if you don't see yourself on the receiving end, you can't see it passing through you. What does it mean to have been in some fashion considered or not? What we're looking at is the inability or the unwillingness of people seven generations ago to proceed as if we would be so one day. This is what the poverty is that I was describing earlier. This is how it feels. And that's why you heard me say last night, when there's finally no hope left, that's when you put a scent in the air of what some people did in a time of trouble. Because the people to come, they're going to need that. They're going to need to know that they come from people who are worthy of coming from. And you don't hope you'll be worthy. You get worthy now. And that's what time it is. And I stand by that, and that's my answer to your question. Get worthy now. How? Find out. But you want to know ahead of time. You don't get to know ahead of time. You cross certain things off the list that turned out not to be really in the worthiness category. You didn't know it at the time. You kind of reluctantly realize, yeah, that wasn't it. Okay. So taste the bitter fruit move but waiting i'm not talking about being still but the notion of waiting for a better something better realization a better feeling i saw a lot of people in in their deathbeds who are still waiting and the bitterness of the wait was just dawning on them and now it's too late and too late is a real ass thing for grown-ups so if you can't operate in the realm of too late for a lot of things you can't operate not in a time like this you'll just be you know ayahuasca and i'll see you later <laughs> a little ungenerous but you take the <laughs> image i think I feel like what you described as elderhood is knowing how to hurt. And it doesn't feel like that's something that can be taught. It feels like that's only something that can be experienced. Like I'm feeling what that feels like by being yeah. with you. Yeah. And yeah. I feel the hurt because I feel how you mm -hmm. feel the hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, yes, it's, it's, it's in part what you're sharing with us, but it's mostly just in being with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's very kind. Um, I, long ago, it dawned on me, standing there in, in front of my school, that I got to make a declaration and I got to keep saying it over and over again to clarify things. And I kept saying, I'm not a teacher. Okay, so I know you mean well when you use the term, but that's not me. So you can't describe me that way and still be talking about me. You might be talking about what you wish I was or what you think that means to you or what you secretly want to be, or whatever it is, but it's not me. It's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is practicing. I'm not teaching. Teachers, as best as I can figure out, the gesture of teaching is this. Teachers teach about elsewhere. That's the whole point of the enterprise, isn't it? 
to get out from under this in a thousand different ways. Practice, on the other hand, doesn't point. If there's a gesture to practice, it's this, not this. So this is why you'd, I rather testily a little while ago responded to the question about, so like, so given all this, no, no, I, no, I said, I've already been speaking about given all this, what do we do? But what you're hearing is somebody who's not accelerating past the speed bump, right? I stop on top of the speed bump and see if I can catch the view. So I'm, I'm trying to do what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about something I'm not doing. I'm trying to do it in the act of talking about it. And if I, you know, to, and people who do that are properly understood as occupying the prophetic function, not the advocacy function. Most people think the word prophecy refers to the future, that you're foretelling what's coming. That's easy. The much harder thing is to focus with desperate certain, um, clarity upon the particulars of now. If you can do that, the near future just does that. Because the near future is in the midst of being born now. So you're paying attention to the contractions and the labor of the near future. That's what prophecy is. So on my best days, I don't forget that. And that's why I'm not talking about the good old used to be, or wouldn't it be great if. I'm not disqualifying anybody else. Let them do it. But we don't all have to do the same thing. Hmm. You don't have to get everything from one person. Right? Yeah. Let people off the hook of being omniscient. It doesn't mean they don't know a lot of stuff. It just means most of the stuff they know you're not asking about. <laughs> it's a Jack Nicholson moment, right? In that whatever the movie is called. What, what do you want? I want the, the truth. You can't handle the truth. Remember that line? It's a little severe, but it's not completely wrong. And the solution people oftentimes have a real hard time with the way it is. Well, sure. I mean, I do too, but I got lucky, you know, and I remain lucky that I was read to from a very young age, I'm sure of it, maybe before I was born, certainly since then. And that's the way I hear. I hear in the cadence of the vague cause and effect, non-argumentative cause and effect structure, which is a story. That's the way I see everything. Everything occurs to me that way. When people are kind enough to ascribe to me a kind of memory that they find remarkable, I say, it's not quite what it is. I don't have total recall on information in here. So then where does it all, how does it come back to you? Or what do you, the answer is, I start somewhere. Not at the beginning, but I start somewhere. And the storiness of something starts reestablishing itself because I started. Can you say a little more? A little bit more goes like this. This is probably more information than anybody cares about, but just in case I don't get to do it again, mm -hmm. I don't want to leave anything in the tank. 
So you're familiar with the dynamics of argument. Oh God, who isn't, right? Especially these days. I mean, you can't turn on anything and not get it. So how, does, how do arguments work? Well, at the risk of simplifying and being argued with about it, you could say it's this. Well, you enter into the fray, right? And then you're cantankerous and then you're debating and the debating turns into a little bit of slinging and for and disqualifying the other guy to qualify you and so on. Two days later, you remember you had an argument. But you can't remember quite what it was about. Like you were willing to go to the frickin' mat with this person two days ago, but you can't remember why now, except you were arguing and he was an asshole, whatever, or you were a lesser asshole, or whatever it was. So there's something about the human memory and whatever it's connected to that's not built of argument. Because when you try to remember it, the memory goes, I don't know. I don't care. That's not where I'm born. If you want to remember, you got to tell it. Not rat somebody out. You got to tell a story. And as soon as you start telling the story, you can smell it as an audience person if somebody's secretly arguing with you by using a story to beat you down. You can smell it. And that's not a story anymore, is it? It's something fundamentally dishonest and very transgressive of the spirit of story. As soon as you start telling the story, the story starts to mobilize around your willingness to tell. You know, let's say you start in the middle somewhere and a few details start to like this, like iron filings uh, you know, over a magnet. And here they come around and then you remember, oh yeah, no, no, it didn't go like that. Went like this and you start to self-correct and before you know it, the story's going, well, you're doing all right. And it just, there it is. So what's going on? That's what you're built of. And your mind, the best part of it, wants to tell, not instruct. So, and there was this, and then this crazy thing happened. And that's, I couldn't believe it. And well, I didn't know how to believe it, the truth be told. But anyway, and then you're off. And the people who are skilled at that turn into poets and, and seers, don't they? And then you're kind of more than curious about what they come up with. And you give them half a chance. But if they're arguing with you, they're turning you out. But if they're telling you something, they're calling you in. It's just a beautiful thought to think that the human mind is not built of the capacity to argue. It does it, but I think it does it like holding its own nose somehow. Like, this is disagreeable in the extreme. And if you win a cantankerous, vicious argument, you don't win. There's no winning. You don't prevail. You survive. It's not the best recipe for culture. Hmm. But storytelling, my God. Nobody talks about winning a storytelling, do they? It doesn't even enter in because <laughs> you're not competing. So what are you doing? Well, you're saying, I don't know anything, but I heard this once. And somebody, and somebody just involuntarily leads. Oh, yeah. And it's something like good faith and goodwill in the body politic could be restored if the people in positions of responsibility and power started telling stories and losing their argument, just, just being without it, not trying to generate, how do you call those things? On the internet, when they like, likes, I guess, whatever, <laughs> all that stuff, not trying to do that, just telling the people 
What's a good idea for them to know right now? Not fearing them until they see it your way. But you can feel when you're manipulated by the argument every time. Now, sometimes you don't mind the manipulation. That's too bad. It goes that way too. I mean, they, they wouldn't do that if it didn't work. So we know it works. The storytelling ceases to work that way and does its medicinal job by healing the notion that the, the, the web of connectivity that a story reminds you of is what you're longing for. It's not to prevail above the web of connectivity. It's the web. That's what a story is. It's the manifestation of the web. It says, like this, it says. And the, the goofiest thing you can do is you say, I don't believe that story. <laughs> what? The story's got nothing to do with your belief. You know, uh, I don't believe that either. Well, some people they say, oh, look, go be miserable by yourself then. <laughs> I got nothing for you. Never said I did. But that, you know, it's two hours of nights of grief and mystery. That's all it is, is storytelling, which turns out to be a pretty big deal with not one piece of information about how to be a better person. Nothing you can directly act on just because he told me to do this, so I did it. You still have to translate everything you heard into what now? Like I have to do every night when I stand there. I could say, I wish it didn't go that way. I wish that wasn't the consequence of me answering the questions as I've done. But I don't wish it was otherwise. That's the honest truth. I'm not wishing you to be confounded or to find yourself choking on what you might have thought was important to ask or any, or any of that stuff. All I'm saying is, if something's happened here, that's a sign that your preparation is no, no longer part of the thing. It's not junk. This might be useful another time. But right now, we've gone elsewhere. It's like you packed three parkas and all the Lululemon you could manage, but we're in the tropics. So you don't need to take most of it out. That's good to know, right? So just a wrecked t-shirt and flip-flops. That'll do right now, question-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. We, I mean, we did know. We did know that that's what we were asking for uh, in, mm -hmm. in being with you. So it feels, it feels really important. Mm -hmm. Let me end my end of things with this, if I could. <clears throat> One of the hardest things to understand about the event that we call suicide is that virtually all of the consequences that are set into motion by the act are not lived out by the person who acted. They're lived out by the rest of us. It's very hard to think that thought all the way through and still allow that suicide is a right. Because there's so much consequence 
that where's the consideration of the responsibility that comes with consequence? Okay, so I do the same thing when I'm speaking. I'm doing my best to hear the, the carnage that could conceivably ensue. You know, if you take seriously 20% of what we come up with here, will I have to live out the life that you will live as a consequence of what we've spoken about? And the answer is no. Almost certainly, mathematically, no. I'll be gone long before you. So the other half of that is I don't get to see what you do with what you asked of me. And you just need to know that that's a mournful realization. That, you know, you work on behalf of some kind of better something. But it's work. It's not seeing it. It's, it's proceeding minus that. Right? So why am I doing that? Because I'm such a giving guy. No. That's not why. It's because I hope when it's your turn, you have at least one example of what it looks like to do that. That's why. So you can't say what I used to be able to say when I was a younger person, in this case much younger, before I'd seen a human incarnation of the real thing. I could slouch on the threshold of adulthood and I could sneer and I could dismiss and I could say, don't ask me because I'd never seen it. But then I saw it. Holy shit, what carnage ensued. I mean, for years. I mean, a full 10 years lived in the desert as a consequence of seeing the real thing, which you think is supposed to deliver you to the garden. But that's not what it does, because you still have to figure out how to live what you saw. And that's why people afflicted with a vision are often such awful neighbors to have, because they don't know how to live out this searing vision that was entrusted to them, which lasted like that. So I just try to slow it down so it's not a searing vision, you know, that's just incapacitating. But then I get to school and I get excited and I start going and then I don't get tired at all. But I, I suppose I'm slowing down slightly, long enough to bear you in mind and not just taking this as an opportunity to blow. You know, and I think you could tell I didn't really just spew. I really listened to what you said, and I listened to what you didn't say, and tried to hear them both really clearly, and proceed as if you're here. And I'm not secretly speaking to somebody who's not here, I'm just talking to the two of you. And so you have to know what a grace, what a, what a kind of blessing it is to be of a certain age, where you get to out loud remind yourself why you still might be called upon from time to time. That's for you to give, and you did. So we understand there's nothing one way about this. That does feel like the perfect place to, <laughs> to, to bring things together to okay. a close. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, Thank you're you welcome. so much for your time. Welcome. Your Thank listening. you. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Aging. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others and leave a rating and review for us in iTunes or Spotify. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on all the social platforms at This Is Aging. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.
Please note the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice or consultation with a healthcare professional. In this episode, we may share links and references to products and services that may enable us to receive compensation from referrals or sales. This is Aging only recommends products and services that we use, love, and believe will be helpful to you.